Good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church. Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our series called A Faith of Influence. And we've been looking at some particular scenes in the Old Testament and the books of First and Second Samuel of these scenes where there's pivotal moments, times when it gives us an opportunity to look at what is influencing us and how we can influence others. And we've been looking at uh, some of these great figures in the Bible. We've been looking at, uh, at Hannah and Samuel and Saul. And then last week and last couple weeks and today at, uh, at King David. And uh, this morning, we're going to dig into a story that uh, uh, my guess is not everybody in this room has read, and it may be a new story for some of you. So we'll dig in here in just a minute, but let me give you just a little bit of background and, and, and catch us up a little bit before we, uh, before we dig in. So this is, this is back in the time of uh, the first kings. So this was when um, you know, there was a period where uh, the people of God, the Israelites, were ruled by judges. And they said, you know what, this isn't working. Uh, we want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. So give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. And God says uh, through the prophet Samuel, okay, I'll give you what you asked for. You can be like other, the other nations, but there'll be a cost to that as well. So this ushers in the period of the kings. And the first king is, um, is King Saul and then there's going to be this civil war over time between the house of Saul and the house of David. David will ultimately triumph. There's a brutal civil war. And right before our time here, we see David at a, at a real high point. He's had lots of victories over the Philistines. He's, he's danced before the Lord, and he's been promised by God that he will have this uh, this kingdom that will, that will go on and on and on, that will endure forever. So we're at a high point. Some of the problems, some of the awful things that are going to happen in David's life are to come. But right now, we're at a high point. And I want to read you this account from 2 Samuel chapter 9. Okay, so let's turn there now. David asked... Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame. In both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. So King David had him brought from Lodibar from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Bephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. 
I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servants to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Give us eyes to see, Lord, what we need to this morning. I pray that my words are clear, that they're helpful, and that they bring you glory and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do that. And Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let me give you a little context. As I said, this might be a new story for you. This is one of those little scenes that's going to say so much about the goodness and the kindness and the love of God. But a little context first. So we're in the Old Testament. We're in a, a, a book of history here. This is important to understand as we read the Bible. We need to pay attention to what, what genre or what type uh, of writing this is. So we're looking at history. This is, these are real people, real places, real events. They are recorded for us. We often say that the Bible is written for us, but it is not directly to us. In other words, we need to understand the context in which it's written and make some observations and interpret it and then apply it. That's the process as followers of Jesus that we always need to go through. This story, this little scene, fits within a bigger story of how God is working through his imperfect people through the Israelites. This is part of their story. Part of how God in his, his sovereignty, his control, is working through highly flawed people. The Old Testament makes, makes no attempt to sugarcoat anything, doesn't gloss over the mess. All the ugliness is right there. In the midst of this, though, we're going to see this picture of God's kindness, of David's kindness, it's going to point to something larger. And this word kindness that we see here, there's a Hebrew word hesed, which runs throughout the Old Testament that is one of the primary descriptors of the very character of God. So we think about all the characteristics of God, his, you know, his holiness, his his goodness, his justice, his wrath, all these, all these things. But what we always want to bring into focus is his, his love. So that's on display for us in this particular passage. 
And for all of his flaws, we'll see that David is a man after God's own heart. That's how he has been described, and we're going to see that on display in this particular scene. And sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we encounter a word, a world that is extremely brutal. It's brutal. It just is. What the Bible describes, it doesn't always prescribe. You know, and I was, I was just reflecting on this. Sometimes we, we just read the Bible and we'll, we'll take a passage or two and we'll, we'll stick it on the fridge. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But sometimes we miss the bigger picture of the context. And in this, you're going to see a brutal world. A world in which you have, you know, you have assassinations, you have murders, you have extremely violent battles. And I was reminded of how much we're, we're drawn to brutality, even in our own culture, even in, in just the, the movies we watch, the things that we see. Had the privilege um, last weekend to go out to Denver to spend some time with, with my boys and do some hiking. But, you know, we had some downtime and it's like, well, you know, we've always liked watching action movies. So we watched Gladiator, you know, the old, the old Gladiator movie. And it's a, it's a brutal world. It's a brutal world. And, and the Old Testament is much like the brutality in, in, in some of those movies and even... I won't mention them by name because you'll look at each other and say, well, I've, I'm too sanctified to have even heard of that. But uh, we've got shows that are on today that, that highlight a brutal world. But within that, there's always a cry for the light, for what's good, for what's right, what's just. Somebody step in and fix this messed up, broken world of brutality. And we'll see in this scene a little glimpse of that that's going to point to something even larger. So Mephibosheth, that's a hard name to say. <laughs> April was sharing with me that in, in Kenya, they don't like to, it, it's hard to say the name, so they'll just say Mephi. I can't bring myself to do that. But uh, anyway, so this character, again, he's the grandson of Saul. He's the son of Jonathan. So Jonathan was David's best friend. They had made this covenant together. Uh, great brotherly love, friendship, you know, kind of like, well, well, I'll take care of you, you take care of me. And there's this promise that David makes to care for him and his household. So he's died, and uh, this is who we have left. Now, Mephibosheth lives in a place called Debar, which is literally a place of no pasture. So he lives in a place that's isolated, that's distant, and he is literally lame in both feet. So what happened was when he was just five years old, and they learned that Saul has been wounded, and Saul's going to end up falling on his sword, Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, uh, has died in battle. And as they are, the house of Saul is fleeing, uh, and Mephibosheth's nurse, you know, like drops him and he's injured and he, he, he becomes lame in both feet. So that's the situation that uh, we find Mephibosheth. And in the midst of this, we're going to see how 
King David, his kindness, his hesed, is going to change the answers to some fundamental questions for Mephibosheth. So let's dig into his life in three questions that we can ask of him, and then we'll ask those of ourselves. The first is this, who is he? Who is he? This is a question of identity. 2 Samuel 9, 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That's how he thinks of himself. First of all, when, when we hear that, David is saying, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? What would everybody in that culture be thinking? What's going to happen to whoever's left? You're going to die because we don't want anybody from the opposition to rise up. But what does David do? That I may show kindness, kindness to who's left. But Mephibosheth sees himself as a dead man, a dead dog, worthless. But David says this to him, don't be afraid, David said to him, verse 7, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. You need to see the before and the after. In the blink of an eye, in a moment, Mephibosheth will go from I'm a dead dog, I'm a dead man, to now, you've got a seat, a seat at the king's table, just like a son. That's who you now are. It's like a son to the king. That's what it means to eat at the table. The second question, where is he living? Where is he living? As I said earlier, he was in Lodabar, which means being in the place of no pasture. And we don't think of that as a big deal today, but no pasture is a a place of no place. It is isolation. It is desolation. And now where is he? He's got a seat at the table of the king. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. This seems like a curious way to end this part. I always hesitate to say, who, you know, who am I to say this is a strange way to end the passage? <laughs> but I'm asking myself the question, why is this particular detail here we have? He sits at the king's table always, and he's lame in both feet. We put the two details together, and what do we see? Mephibosheth could not help himself. He is helpless, and he is provided for at the same time. Friends, what a picture of God's grace. What a picture of grace. What a picture of unmerited favor. What a picture of God giving us what we need. The third question, what is his future? Before he's summoned before the king, he has no inheritance. He has no future. Now he has everything. Now he, is, he and his son will be provided for as long as they live. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture of David's kindness and what it does in the blink of an eye from Mephibosheth? 
But even greater than that, we see that the, the kindness of King David is going to point to an even greater kindness of a greater king. So let's turn to the New Testament and let's talk about Jesus and let's talk about how this points to the love of Jesus and answers those same questions for us. So take a right in your Bible, let's go to the New Testament and ask this first question, who are you? And I want to take you to Colossians 1, 21. Colossians 1, 21. Let's do a little before and after here. Colossians 1, 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Once you were alienated from God, do you believe that to be true? This morning, maybe, maybe you've, you've already put your faith and your trust, trust in Christ and you can remember that time. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're, you're trying to figure it out, but whatever the case, there's a point in time when we were enemies of God. I don't like to think of myself as an enemy of God. That's the reality, though, of what we once were. To see the good news, we need to see the darkness that was there. We need to see that we actually have a sin nature, that we're actually <laughs> distanced from God before we put our faith and trust in him. I was um, reminded of that uh, actually yesterday. As you may have heard, I have a couple of granddaughters. On occasion, I will talk about them. And I got to take my two-year-old granddaughter to gymnastics or nastics, as she said. So picture this. you got all these little stations. you got the bars. you got the trampolines, all this, this kind of stuff. I had to stretch out before I went just so I didn't pull anything. But, uh, you know, as I was observing, you got all these kids... Um, you didn't have to teach them to cut in line. You didn't have to teach them to say, I'm going to go first. You didn't have to teach them to say, I want my bubbles and you don't get yours. We don't have to teach people to be selfish. There's not a Selfishness 101 class. It just kind of comes naturally to us. Would you agree? And then the other day, we're, my wife Kim and I, we, we, we've got the girls, and um, little Eleanor says, uh, Gigi, um, can I take this toy home? One of the toys at Gigi and Pop's house. And, and Kim says, no, you know, it needs to stay here. You've got your own toys at home. And, and uh, Eleanor says, uh, does Pop's know of this? Does Pops know? What, what is she planning in her little mind? How can I manipulate Pops? He's a little softer than Gigi. To do what I want to do. It's, it's much joy and what's wonderful. She, she's a little manipulator. <coughs> we all have a sin nature. We don't have to be taught that. You don't have to go to the library and get a book on how to manipulate. Now, Play that sin nature forward into adulthood. 
and crank that up and you get brutality. Now, that's the bad news. The good news, though, Colossians 1.22, first part of that, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Where there was separation, now we're reconciled. We can be close, we can be near to God. And that's, that's the gospel, that's the good news that Jesus has rescued us. And we put our faith and our trust in him, we, we become a child of God. And, and John says it this way, 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Lavished, extravagant love. That's the picture that we need to see. John, the beloved disciple, says, see this, look at it. It's true. This is who you are now. This is who you are. You're a child of God. I love the picture from Kenya of being just part of the family, part of the family of God now. Now, how do you know this is true? How do you know that this, these aren't just words on a page? Again, John's going to say it this way. He said, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. So we've been given the, Holy, the very spirit of God, spirit of God present at the creation, spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. What an amazing promise and truth. And one of the things the Spirit does is remind us who we are. You're a child of God. You're a son. You're a daughter of the King. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. What a promise. What a promise. So where do you live? Where do you live? The Apostle Paul in this great letter, 2 Corinthians 4 and 5, he, he's talking about the contrast between our earthly body and our heavenly body, uh, that which is now and that which is eternal. And he's going to say, look, your outward body is wasting away. Can anybody identify? Can anybody shake your head and say, yes, Jason, I know that, amen. I can't do what I used to do. I don't care how much you work out. I don't care how well you eat. I don't care what supplements you take. I don't care what your routine is. Your body is going to waste away. It is going to break down and die. Welcome to church. <laughs> but that's true. I don't care what, and it's, it's good to do all those things. But your body's going to break down. Outwardly. Yet inwardly, you're being renewed day by day. And God is preparing you for something greater that is eternal. That's eternal. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know 
that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because we, when we were clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we were in this tent, we groan in our burden because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So the promise is that which is to come. Your broken down body, my broken down body, all the burden, all the groaning will one day be restored. What a picture. What a promise. And what's your future? Let's see how Jesus himself answers this question. April and Pam already alluded to it, but I'm going to read you Matthew 25, verse 31. This is Jesus' answer to the question, what is your future? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine... You did for me. What a beautiful, positive picture. I'd like to stop here, but I love you too much to not continue with the other side of that. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, For one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These are hard words. 
straightforward words. These are the words of, of, of Jesus. Now, there's a lot we can say about this passage. One of the things I want you to be careful of, what Jesus is not saying is your good works are what save you. Okay, we're not looking at this passage to determine how we're saved. We're saved when we put our faith and trust in, in Christ. I mean, that's, that's clear throughout the New Testament. But I think at bare minimum, we can say this. Somehow, somehow our genuine love for God, our genuine love for God is evidenced by the way we love the least of these. I don't believe we can say any less than that. That somehow, if I'm going to say I love Jesus, but I don't have a love for the least of these, there's something inauthentic about my faith. That's hard, but that's, that's true. That's true. So just let that sit on you for a moment. Now, what do we do with that? How do, how do we respond? How do we respond? Well, let's turn to another passage. I want to take you to something Paul says again that I think is really helpful. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I want to give you this bottom line. When you see, you're compelled to share. When you see, when we see, we are compelled to to share. Let's talk about this word compelled for just a moment. Compelled carries a couple meanings with it. One is it, it, it focuses our attention, and the other is it is the force behind what we're doing. Let me give you a complicated theological illustration here. You ever spray somebody with a garden hose? You know, you don't have the fancy sprayer and all that. You just, just straight garden hose. What, what do you do to spray somebody? You put your thumb over it, right? What does that do? It, it focuses that space. It narrows that space to create more pressure for the water to come out. So there's a focusing and there is a force behind whenever we talk about the word compelled. So if, our, if the love of Christ is compelling us, it is Narrowing our focus, anybody distracted? And it is the force behind what we're doing. That's the picture. That's the picture that Paul gives us here. Now, I've got to see it. I've got to be convinced before I am compelled. I need to see the love of God. I need to see the cross. I need to see the resurrection. I need to, to know. I need to be convinced. Doesn't mean that I still can't have a few doubts or questions. 
Doesn't mean I can't pray, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, but I'm, I'm convinced that Jesus died on the cross. I'm convinced that he rose from the dead. And I believe that to be true as a historical fact. Not just a nice story, but a historical fact. Some of us this morning, you may not be convinced, or you, you walk around with people, live with people, care for people, parent people, grandparent people who aren't yet convinced. And if you're here today and you're not convinced, I am so grateful that you're here. You may not say that out loud, but deep down in your heart, you may say, I'm not really convinced. What I would say, if that's you, let's have a conversation. Let's dig in and let's know, let's put a name on what you're actually rejecting. Because some people who are not convinced just see the hypocrisy of followers of Jesus guilty and say, I'm going to reject it because I don't like what I see in the followers of Jesus. Now, we got work to do on all that. But what I would say to you, if you're not convinced, is say out loud what you're actually rejecting. There's a difference between rejecting somebody who follows Jesus and not liking what they represent and actually rejecting Jesus and his claims himself. There's a difference. Know what you're actually rejecting. I believe many of us, though, are in a different category, and that is we're convinced, but we're not compelled to action. And this is what I believe happens when we're convinced, yes, I believe it's true, yes, I can check the box on that, but I'm not compelled enough to love the way Jesus loves. I'm convinced, but I'm not compelled, and when I'm not compelled, what can happen is we can become calloused. Our very hearts can be calloused. So if I'm convinced, but I'm not compelled to act, my heart can become calloused. And every time I don't do what I feel like God is leading me to do, another layer of callous can form. So what do you do? What do you do if that's you? What do we, what do, we do together? On the one hand, I, we could say, well, hey, go out and do more. Just go out and do it. I don't know that that necessarily works. I don't think that necessarily works. It might work for a minute. But I want to invite us to take a different step this morning. I want us to do something that uh, the Bible describes simply as to lament. To lament. Do you know the word lament? If, if you look up the word lament, and I'm kind of a geek. I like the history of words. The stock on lament has gone down over time. <laughs> Used to be up here. Now it's not a very popular word. But what does it mean to lament? To lament 
is to weep. It's to express your disappointment. It's to express your sorrow. It's also to express your regret, your, your disappointment. It's, it's almost a type of confession that says, you know, when I, when I see the love of Jesus, and I know that's true, and then, then I see what I failed to do. Oh. One of the ways I believe we can break that cycle of being convinced but not compelled and then calloused is to stop and lament. Say that out loud. So we're going to prepare to come to the communion table, and when we, we come to the table, we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross. We remember his, his body given for us. We remember his, his blood shed for us the forgiveness of sins. We remember all that good news, but before we do that, we want to examine our hearts and we want to lament for just a moment. So I want to invite you to do that together with me. So I'm going to lead us. I'm going to say the first part of a prayer of lament, and then we'll respond together with Lord. Hear our prayer. So let's invite you to join me in that. We lament our lack of proximity to people who are in need of community. Lord, hear our prayer. Then our second lament. We lament our inability to clear time in our schedule to meet the needs of the least of these. Lord, hear our prayer. And then finally, we lament that we haven't seen the people in our community who have been socially outcast or treated as less than. Lord, hear our prayer. Would you pray with me as we prepare to come to the table? Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love. We We thank you for your sacrifice demonstrated on the cross for us. And yet we lament. We say out loud our regret, our disappointment for failing to live as you would have us live. And as we receive the bread and the cup, Even as we lament, we say, thank you, Jesus, for loving us while we were yet sinners. Holy Spirit, continue to be our guide. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.